Hey, podcast family, welcome back to another episode. In a previous episode that we called You Asked, We Answered, I said that every so often as the need arose and as there was an opportunity to do it, we would kind of have a more informal podcast episode, but still equally as informative, where we would just answer some common misperceptions or questions that are out there regarding a certain contemporary topic. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode, because a lot of stuff is happening. First of all, we're going to address the FDA's decision to possibly approve over-the-counter birth control and what that means, right? Now, there's a lot in that statement, but it's all over the mainstream media. I just heard it on talk radio yesterday. The FDA is going to approve over-the-counter birth control. So that triggered a lot of uh, text messages and Facebook messages to me from non-women's healthcare professional friends, friends in general surgery. Uh, I had somebody in psychiatry say, hey, I can get my patch over the counter now, to which I responded, wait, you're still on the patch? I, I didn't know we were still using that that frequently. <laughs> But and the answer was no, no, it has, has nothing to do with the Nuva ring or the vaginal ring for birth control. It has nothing to do with the implant. So we're going to make this clear. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but it's interesting what the media is saying and it's confusing some non-women's healthcare professionals. That's the first thing. Then we're going to talk about the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force new recommendation. Notice I emphasized new to do screening mammogram at age 40. Is that really new? Uh, that triggered a lot of confusion. I got a lot of text messages, again, from non-women's healthcare professionals going, wait, you told me in the past that you should get one at 40, and now it's just coming up? So were you, like, really ahead of the curve, or did I miss something? And the answer was, yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty up to date, but I'm not that ahead of the curve, <laughs> and you missed something. So we're going to discuss wh- why that came up. Uh, why they changed the recommendation from 50 to 40, and why it's causing confusion from those who see mainstream media who aren't in women's health care. And then the third thing that I want to talk about uh, has to do with diabetes in uh, a regular adult population, not just type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes that's we're seeing with much more frequency. Recently, one of our residents did a fantastic Grand Rounds on management of pre-existing diabetes in pregnancy. Well, most of the data that has linked anomalies, birth defects, to hemoglobin A1c was in type 1 diabetes, which are still out there, obviously. But as type 2 diabetes rises, is that link still valid? Is is there a correlation between that hemoglobin A1c in the periconception period and birth defects when it's type 2 diabetes? Well, there's data that came out in 2021 from my old institution in Dallas that uh, ever since that came out, I've that's a, there's great little tricks to help you remember some key numbers, and I'm going to tell you about the rule of 10 regarding that, all right? So that's what we're going to talk about here. Oh, my goodness. Wait, sorry. Somebody reminded me. There's one more thing. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so yesterday, one of our labor and delivery nurses, her name is Ruthie, she sent me a Facebook message uh, regarding our episode on stillbirth and interpregnancy interval. In other words, getting pregnant after stillbirth, uh, and does that interpregnancy interval matter? Uh, and in that, we summarize the fact that while there was an increased risk of preterm birth after uh, first pregnancy after stillbirth, it didn't seem to make a difference whether the pregnancy happened within six months uh, or greater than 18 months. Well, Ruthie had a great pickup. She said, all right, I get that. Higher rate of preterm births. Were those spontaneous or were those medically indicated? 
Man, that's a good, that's a deep question. And we're going to answer that in this episode. Sorry, Ruthie, almost left out your fourth question there. So four things we're going to cover. The -the over-the-counter birth control, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force new recommendation uh, to begin mammograms at the age of 40. We're going to walk down that history uh, and make it clear. Then we're going to talk about hemoglobin A1C in not just type 1 diabetics, but in regular adult type 2 diabetics and the rule of 10. And then we're going to get to the issue on preterm birth being higher after stillbirth. And does the timing matter? Man, it's a lot of stuff. We're going to do this quick. Ready? Let's go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A push for an American first, over-the-counter birth control pills. I think that's great. I feel like it's necessary. Without a doubt, this is a right that everyone should have access to. Advisors to the Food and Drug Administration meeting next week to review drug maker Paragos. All right, so that's one of the news stories that's been out recently. That was from uh, NBC Nightly News. Uh, no affiliation with them, just making that clear, I have to say that. But did you notice what they said? And this is what's been going on in the news and in the media, whether it's print media uh, or on television or the radio, is birth control is going over the counter. No, it really isn't. It's one kind of birth control. Now, we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but this ha- this is causing a lot of confusion because I've had even patients say, oh my goodness, now that my birth control pill is going to be over the counter, can I just go get that? To which I answer, uh, yes, but it's not the one that you're taking. Remember that over the counter, the movement towards over the counter is only towards one type of pill right now, which is the O pill, which is a progestin only pill. All right, it's great. I have no, no beef with that. It's fantastic. But... Uh, it's not like every kind of birth control is going to be over the counter. Just to be complete and for education purposes, the O-pill is not norethindrone. It is norgestrel. It is 0.075 milligrams of the single active steroid agent norgestrel. I mentioned this in a previous episode. I'm all for this because this is a door opener. We just need something over the counter. And then that can potentially open the door to uh, other opportunities like regular combination birth control. But the whole idea when the media says birth control is going to be over the counter, you see how confusing that is? Yes, it is, without a doubt. But it would be more accurate. It would be much more correct to say one form of oral birth control, which is a progestin-only pill, will be made over the counter. Here's what the progestin-only pill means. Now, wouldn't that be easy? But no, (laughs) I'm driving down to the office the other day and it comes on talk radio. Oh my goodness, birth control pills going over the, uh, all birth control pills are going over the counter. It's exactly what it said. Complete misunderstanding of what was being discussed, but at least we do have some forward movement in the right direction. Recently, the advisors to the FDA did meet and it was unanimous, 17 to zero, that proposed and endorsed and supported over-the-counter distribution of the progestin-only pill. 
So once that's done and safe safety is, is verified, as we think it will be because it's nothing new, this has been done in other parts of the world for years, then potentially we could discuss things like combination birth control. Now, people say, oh, man, that's way down the road. That may never happen. I understand that. I get that. But it's got to start somewhere. And I'll take a an only pill being over the counter uh, compared to nothing at all. ACOG has always called for increased access to hormonal contraception and even to over-the-counter opportunities for birth control. So yes, ACOG does support this. ACOG's support for over-the-counter birth controls can be found in Committee Opinion 788, which is over-the-counter access to hormonal contraception. There is a national patient advocacy group that launched Free the Pill, and they've done a lot of work to bring awareness to over-the-counter availability for birth control. But if you actually go to freethepill.org slash OTC Access World Map, it's kind of a nice interactive view of which countries around the world offer over-the-counter birth control. Now, it's not the only world map that does that online. There's others, but this is just one that gets a lot of press because it's very easy to use. Again, freethepill.org slash OTC, access world map. Now, just because the O-pill may go over the counter, remember, nothing's final yet. The FDA still has to give the final approval. They typically listen to their advisors, but they can do whatever they want to. So it's not a slam dunk yet. But the idea is once this O-pill, the progestin-only pill, gets accepted, perhaps, again, as we've already stated, it'd be a door opener to other things. But it's interesting to take a look at the other countries, mainly Latin America, South America, that has over-the-counter birth control without an increase in adverse events. All right, as we leave this first question about birth control going over the counter, we just leave it with this. The FDA is set to vote soon, but remember, nothing is definite. It's up to their final vote. So we'll see if the FDA does what all of the advisors are saying to do, which is release the O-pill for over-the-counter status. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That brings us to our second point to clarify. On March the 9th, 2023, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force updated their recommendations for breast cancer screening in the general population. This updated recommendation did two things. It changed the age to begin screening from 50, which is what the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force first recommended, down to 40 to be in line now with ACOG. And they had a new statement about dense breasts. All right, so those are the two things that changed. The change in timing now moving down to the age of 40. And they made a new statement on breast density at mammogram. Now, we've covered dense breasts on mammogram in previous episodes. You got to go back and listen to that because we give a lot of data about is that evidence-based? Should everybody get a breast ultrasound if they have dense breasts or not? Or is it just education? So you got to go back and listen to those episodes. But here's why the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force moved that recommendation from 50 down to 40, which is what ACOG has been recommending for several years now. Quote, new and more inclusive science about breast cancer in people younger than 50 has enabled us, meaning the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, to expand the recommendation and encourage all women to get screening in their 40s. 
We have long known that screening for breast cancer saves lives, and the science now supports all women getting screened every other year starting at age 40, end quote. All right. Now, that made national news. It's all over print media. It's all over uh, talk radio as well. But that's not necessarily a new thing because that's been ACOG's stance for many years now. We're going to walk down the ACOG uh, algorithm here in just a minute. This new draft recommendation by the USPSTF also includes that statement about dense breaths. Quote, nearly half of all women have dense breasts, which increases the risk for breast cancer and means that mammograms do not work as well for them. Women are generally told by their clinician that they have dense breasts after they've had a mammogram. These women deserve to know whether and how additional screening might help them stay healthy. Unfortunately, there is not yet enough evidence for the task force to recommend for or against additional screening with breast ultrasound or MRI, end quote. Now, before we get into the ACOG stance on this subject, which, by the way, let me spoil it, is exactly what the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is now saying. I do want to clarify who this group of individuals, who this body actually is. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force is an independent volunteer group of national experts who primarily come out of preventative care and primary care. Now, their job is to look at evidence-based data and to come up with basic guidelines and recommendations based on that data up to that point about uh, general services, including screening tests, counseling services, and preventative medications and preventative interventions. This body of individuals was created in 1984 and is made up of 16, once again, volunteer members who come from the fields of preventative medicine and primary care, including internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, behavioral health, OBGYN, and nursing. Remember, all members are volunteer. This does have some national governmental ties. This is supported in part by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the AHRQ. The AHRQ is authorized by Congress to provide scientific, technical, administrative, and dissemination support to the USPSTF. Regarding the ACOG, back in 2011, in then-Practice Bulletin 122, which was breast cancer screening, ACOG recommended annual mammograms for women starting at age 40. Sound familiar? Then in June of 2017, AGOG revised breast cancer screening guidance saying that starting at age 40 should be part of, quote, shared decision making, end quote. Now, it's still said to begin at 40, that's okay, but that patients should be aware that sometimes there's higher false positive rates starting at age 40, which could trigger anxiety and the need for more tests. And they kind of soften the discussion from annual mammograms at age 40 to starting at age 40 and then having mammograms every one to two years and then switch to annual by age 50. All right. So in 2011, it was annual starting at age 40. And then 2017, they're like, yeah, you can start at 40, but you know, you may have some additional tests that you may be done. Uh, and you can do it every one to two years until 50. And then at 50, it's annual. This updated recommendation can be found in ACOG's Practice Bulletin number 179, which is Breast Cancer Risk Assessment and Screening in Average Risk Women. And lastly, ACOG does have something to say about dense breasts at mammogram. 
Quote, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does not recommend extra screening if you have dense breasts and no other risk factors. End quote. So basically, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force now came in line with ACOGS because ACOG has said this for several years. But if you listen to the media, it's like, oh my goodness, new breast cancer screening recommendations. Yes, they're new for one committee for one body of individuals, but it's not really new for everyone else because we've been doing that for some time now. Anyway, you just got to listen to what the media says and then dissect that a little bit more, which is extra work, but that's what we're trying to do here at Clinical Pearls. We're just trying to be clear, trying to set the record straight and give evidence-based recommendations. That statement regarding dense breasts can be found in ACOG's committee opinion, which is number 625 from March 2015. Okay, we are two down. We've talked about over-the-counter access to the progestin-only birth control. We talked about the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. Now let's get into hemoglobin A1C values and congenital anomalies in patients that don't have just type 1 diabetes, but that have adult-onset diabetes, in other words, type 2. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recently, one of our senior residents, Dr. Carson Klein, presented on the management of pre-existing diabetes during pregnancy. And as always, she did great. But then I asked one question to the group. What is the association between hemoglobin A1c in the periconception interval and birth defects and congenital anomalies? There's always been this association between high hemoglobin A1C levels and certain birth defects, but a lot of that data stemmed from patients with pre-existing type 1 diabetes. Now, as obesity increases in the U.S., there's an increased prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So the question was very simple. Does that same association between hemoglobin A1C and the periconception interval also apply to type 2 diabetes? In other words, is it just the hemoglobin A1C or is there some Something else is it also nutritional? Uh, is it also environmental that goes into this birth defect number and association? Well, the short answer is yes to all of that. Yes, of course, there's a direct correlation between hemoglobin A1C, whether it's type 1 diabetes or type 2 adult onset uh, and malformations. The higher the hemoglobin A1C, the higher the rate of malformations. We get that. But is there evidence to back that up that it's not just related to type 1 diabetes? And yes, of course, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. There's micronutritional deficiencies. There's other environmental factors uh, and and other uh, agents that can contribute to malformations. So if there's poor dietary habits, if there's poor lifestyle choices, meaning uh, smoking, drug use, alcohol, whatever, anything else. It's not just the hemoglobin A1C, even though, yes, that's an independent marker, but everything else can be additive in terms of resulting in a congenital anomaly. In 2001, in the American Journal of Perinatology, 
Robert Martin and David Nelson and Jody Dash, Dr. Spong. These are all fantastic leaders in MFM out of UT Southwestern published this correlation between congenital malformation risk and hemoglobin A1C in a contemporary cohort of pregestational diabetes. Here's what contemporary cohort means. A contemporary cohort means a group of patients that naturally or normally present just for clinical care in the clinical practice. In other words, it's not in a rigid laboratory model, a strict protocol. It's just patients who show up for pregnancy care, and this may have been type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So it was a mix. Before we dive further into this publication and discuss this association of the rule of 10, which isn't really a rule, it's just a helpful memory trick, let's talk about birth defects in the general population. All right, so general population, not including diabetes, just everybody in in a population cohort. According to the CDC, birth defects affect one in every 33 babies born in the U.S. each year. One out of 33, that's 3%. If you take a look at a more everyday model, that means that every four and a half minutes, a baby is born with a birth defect of some type in the U.S., Crazy, huh? So if somebody asks you, what's the rate of birth defects in the general population? It is 1 in 33. Of course, having hyperglycemia during organogenesis just makes those numbers much higher. While cardiac defects, central nervous system lesions, and skeletal malformations like the caudal regression sequence have been linked to maternal diabetes during the periconception interval, nearly any organ system can be affected. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends a target preconception hemoglobin A1C value of 6% or less. Other organizations, including the American Diabetes Association, have also advocated for increased access and management of diabetes prior to pregnancy. But in this study from 2021 at UT Southwestern, only 15%, that's 1-5, 15%. Only that number of women in that population had a hemoglobin A1C of 6% or less, while 21% had a hemoglobin A1C of 10% or greater at presentation for prenatal care for the first time. Only 15%. And because this association exists between the higher hemoglobin A1C levels and birth defects and congenital anomalies, this is why we've got such a long way to go. We've got to do better at preconception education, evaluation, and just overall diabetes care, especially for women in the reproductive age. In this study population from Parkland, the researchers found that overall for the entire group that had diabetes and entered prenatal care, Overall, 8% of infants had some kind of major anomaly, 8%. Now remember, that's 8% in the infants of diabetic mothers overall. But there is a direct tie when you break that up to hemoglobin A1C values. When you correlate them, the higher the number, the higher the rate of birth defects. So remember, 10 and 10% right? 10 and 10%. That's the rule of 10. It's not really a rule, just a helpful little memory trick. That a hemoglobin A1C of 10% at first presentation, in other words, around the periconception interval or so, a hemoglobin A1C of 10% in pregnancy was associated with a 10% anomaly rate. And a hemoglobin A1C of 13%, that number of congenital anomaly rose to 20%. You see that? So that's the rule of 10 or the memory trick of 10. Hemoglobin A1C of 10, 
gave a 10% rate of anomalies in a contemporary cohort of patients with adult-onset diabetes, just any kind of diabetes, and who entered prenatal care. And a hemoglobin A1c of 13% was associated with a 20% anomaly rate. That little memory trick of hemoglobin A1c of 10 equals 10% rate of anomalies is just a helpful tool as we're educating patients and seeing them enroll for prenatal care with diabetes and we get that hemoglobin A1c back. It just gives us kind of a, a overall gestalt of what to expect. Remember, hemoglobin A1c of 13, that gave an anomaly rate of 20 by the way, there's another little helpful uh, memory trick. It's called the rule of 30 for hemoglobin A1C and the overall mean glucose level, the rule of 30. And here's what that is. At a hemoglobin A1C of 8, that generally means a mean maternal glucose level of 180. All right, so hemoglobin A1C of 8, that means mean serum glucose level was in the past of 180. So 8 and 180. So there's the tie in there. That rule of 30 is as that hemoglobin A1C number rises or drops from 8, it rises or drops in mean glucose level by 30. So let's try that. Hemoglobin A1C of 8 equals mean serum glucose level of 180. So let's bring it down to hemoglobin A1C of 7. Well, it's the rule of 30. So it's 180 minus 30. That means that the mean glucose level was 150. Let's go back down. So now let's go to 6, hemoglobin A1C of 6. So that's one number down from 7. We had 150, so that's rule of 30, so minus 30. So that is now 120. All right, so that's the rule of 30. From a hemoglobin A1C of 8 with a mean glucose level of 180, the rule of 30 says for every hemoglobin A1C rise or fall of one number of one unit is a change in mean glucose level by 30. So let's go up the other way. If hemoglobin A1C of 8 gave a mean serum glucose level of 180, a hemoglobin A1C of 9 would mean what? That the mean serum glucose was 180 plus 30. So that's around 210. All right, so that's the rule of 30. It's a quick way if you're ever asked, man, her hemoglobin A1C was 9. I wonder what that meant for her mean glucose level. Oh, it's easy. Mean glucose level was 210 based on the rule of 30. Before we leave this third question set on is there a link between hemoglobin A1C and congenital anomalies in a contemporary cohort, no, there's not just type 1 diabetes, but adult diabetes as well, I do want to say one thing about one of the authors of this publication, all right? So one of the authors on this paper uh, was Jody Dash. So Dr. Dash is an MFM specialist. She's great. She was a first-year fellow when I was an intern. I have to tell you, uh, I know there's some people who probably listen to this from UT Southwestern, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. It's been a lot of years, guys. And it's a good thing. It's just nothing bad. It's a good thing. <laughs> but when I was an intern and I saw Jody Dash, I mean, she was just tall. Uh, she was brilliant. Um, she was, uh, I got to say it now, uh, she was very attractive to me. Uh, at least she was to me. And, and I kept looking at her. I'm like, oh my goodness, this, wow, this is brand new fellow. She's so smart. She's brilliant. She's MFM. And I just had this, this intern uh, level professional crush on Dr. Dash. So I may have embarrassed myself just saying that, but I did. Hey, it is what it is. I just, I don't know. I admired her. I just, it is what it is. Is that weird? That's what, what, let's just move on. All right, Ruthie, all that just to get to your part, to your question. Uh, so this brings us to our last question set, which 
has to do with a recent podcast that we did on the interpregnancy interval after stillbirth and adverse perinatal outcomes. We covered that in a previous episode. It had to be just like two episodes ago, uh, so it's easy to find. The lead author on that was Karen Gibbons, and this is out from the Green Journal, which is um, the Obstetrics and Gynecology. But Ruthie had a great question. You see, in this publication, they found that a short IPI after stillbirth of less than six months really did not have any increase in composite morbidity as compared to waiting greater than 18 months. But there was one thing here. There was a high rate of preterm birth overall in the first pregnancy after stillbirth. Now, so that's something that has to be clarified, right? So it's not like it was problem-free. There was this issue of premature births. The frequency of preterm birth ranged from 24.7% for IPIs less than three months to 28.9% for IPIs of 18 to 23 months, which was overall about a 26% incidence of preterm birth. But it didn't matter, again, whether the pregnancy was early or if they waited, just preterm birth seemed to happen. Well, Ruthie had a great question. All right, I get that. But were these medically indicated preterm births or were they spontaneous? And... The truth is, it's not clear in this publication. See, if I was one of the peer reviewers, I would have requested that they piece that out. The way that the article reads, the publication reads, it sounds like these are spontaneous, not medically indicated. These are just spontaneous preterm births that happened. Uh, it, it seems to be that in, in that vein, but it's not clear. I, as a peer reviewer, I would have said, just offered something very, very easy as a constructive criticism is, I think this is clear for publication, but they need to say these were spontaneous preterm births, or 90% were spontaneous and 10% were medically indicated due to the following. And we don't have that. So I, I don't know. So the, the first answer on interpregnancy interval after stillbirth, remember, as we talked about in the previous episode, the time when a couple should try uh, is when they're ready. Now, of course, there, be, there should be the initial interval of just letting the body heal initially, you know, six to eight weeks or so. And then when they're emotionally ready, when they have allowed time to grieve, then they can make that decision. In this publication, some pregnancies happen as quick as three months, uh, and then six months was the next tier, all the way up to greater than 18 or 24 months. And the first pregnancy, again, did have some issue after stillbirth, primarily in terms of preterm birth, but it didn't really seem to make a difference whether they waited or not. There was also, you know, higher rates of preeclampsia, uh, small for gestational age, NICU admissions. But again, it didn't seem to matter whether they got pregnant quickly or not. That was just high overall as a cohort for that first index pregnancy after stillbirth. So, Ruthie, were these preterm births medically indi uh, indicated? Were they, were they induced or spontaneous? It is not clear from the publication. But the way that it reads, it sounds like these were spontaneous preterm births. But again, that's, some, that's one of the criticisms from this, uh, but we just don't have it. Maybe a, we'll send in a letter to the editor for them to clarify. Thanks, Ruthie, for the question. All right, podcast family, that was our second episode in the You Asked, We Answered kind of format. I hope you found it helpful. We just wanted to knock out some quick information because there's some weird stuff floating around, so we wanted to set the record straight. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.